For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're working our way through 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 3, talking about, he's, he says that we're ministers of a new covenant. And we're going to unpack what that means a little bit. Remember that, you know, the context of 2 Corinthians is very important. Paul has uh, a bit of a contentious relationship with the church in Corinth. He was the one that was used by God to establish this church there. They know him personally. He had been there. He had helped that church get off the ground and get started. But Corinthian was a very, Corinth was a very um, immoral city. The culture there was pretty rowdy, was pretty wild. And as the church grew and Paul went on to uh, plant other churches, he started hearing about all the crazy things that were going on there. And he wrote the, book, the letter of 1 Corinthians where he was warning them and really kind of taking them on, saying this stuff that you guys are doing does not represent God. You guys need to, to, to challenge your flesh and stand against your natural tendencies and remember that you're the community of God. You are how the people in your city are going to learn about who God is. How are they going to do that if you're still living like everyone else? Well, they didn't like that too much. They were upset and uh, they started questioning Paul. His personal credentials, along with his message, along with his theology, begin being challenged. And we all know how this works. Someone comes in, they point out something that they don't like about us. What do we do? We start pointing out stuff we don't like about them, right? And that's just human nature, right? That when we feel critiqued, we want to attack the messenger, you know, and discredit the source, now, you take on top of that, that it was pretty typical that as Paul would leave a city, the enemies of God would organize people to go in behind Paul and try to take people away from the teachings of Jesus Christ and lead them toward what we could just call religion. That they would say, no, 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 you've been told that, you know, you can, that God is love and that you can freely receive God's forgiveness. And that's just not true. You have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to be a good person. You have to eat the right foods. You have to do the right things. And also, you have to give us your money. And so they would come in with that kind of man-centered religion, and they would attack Paul, they would attack the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they would say, this is the true way of God. And so not only is Paul being put into tension with the people of Corinth because he's speaking the truth in love about what needs to change, but the enemies are coming in behind him and, being, and they're trying to discredit Paul's teaching. And so we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and we see a major theme that shows up here in the entire book. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of condemnations to you or from you? And what he's saying is, is are you listening to me? Do you believe in me? Do you think that I'm from God, or do I need better credentials? You know, and this was common in the ancient world. Uh, the issue of cred credentials is a big part of this letter. Paul, what gives you the right to rebuke us, to tell us that we need to change? You know, how do we know that you're even from God? We've heard rumors you were a Pharisee and you used to persecute Christians. How do we know you're the real deal? And that's Paul's 
direct confrontation of that question. He says, look, are you willing to listen to me or do you need proof? Do you of all people need proof that I'm the real thing? Is that what's happening? I'm I'm just going to be rejected here because I'm not one of the 12. Is that how you feel about it? He goes on to explain his argument here. In verses 2 and 3, he says, you want a letter of condemnation? You want proof that I'm from God? He says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He says, really? You, of all people, want to know whether I'm really authentic? Wasn't I the one who led you to Jesus Christ? Isn't that the greatest credential that there could be is that I led you not to myself, but to God? Paul's authenticity, his argument here with these people is just look at the fruit. I came to lead you to Christ. You know me. You know that I love you. You saw me serve you. You saw me refuse to take money for you. I worked day and night making tents so that you couldn't uh, accuse me of trying to get rich from the gospel. And look at my life, he says. God continues to use me. I am here. I am about God. I am about love. I am not about religion. My spiritual credentials, he says, are written in our relationships, not written on tablets of stone. You want me to go to Jerusalem, get a letter from Peter, you know, with a big fancy symbol on it and a seal? And I mean, will that make you feel better? Will that change the fact of what God has done through my teachings in your city? And it's a really important question for us too. What is more important? What is leadership and what kind of leader should be followed? Does a spiritual leader need to have a master's degree or a PhD? You know, one of the problems in the American church is, is we have this system and we have these, you know, huge organizations and we write these letters and we give these degrees, we give these things, and then we move pastors around every two or three years to different churches. And they don't build relationships with the people. You know, a, Typically, a pastor's job is to come into a church, help build it, help grow, establish a reputation for himself so that he can get moved to a bigger church. And his credentials are based on degrees and pieces of paper, not on the love that he has for his people, not on the the, the impact that they have for God. It's run with more of a corporate mindset than it is a spiritual mindset. And it's not that PhDs and master's degrees are bad. We're not saying getting educated is bad, but we're saying that you can have those things and you can have letters from from authorities, but that doesn't mean that you have spiritual power in your life. And that's something that we should look to. Are you ordained by a major denomination? That has some meaning, but not as much meaning as are you willing to serve and lay down your life for people who are in need? He's saying the love of God working through leaders, leaders who are consistent with God's word, who are obedient to God, that's what you should look for. And he says, was that not, does that not characterize my time with you? Was I not sacrificial? Did I not love you? And I led you to God. 
Jesus talked about this in Luke 6, 44 to 48. He says, for each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs nor thorns. Do they pick grapes from a briar bush? The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. You could tell what's going on with somebody by looking at the fruit, looking at are they leading people to God or are they leading people to themselves? Are they somehow puffing themselves up? Now, you get problems here because, you know, good people also suffer and fall on hard times. So you can't just look at it and say, well, if someone's being blessed and their ministry is growing, then they're good, right? Because there are good people that polarize and have hard times where people leave because they don't want to hear the truth. You also have bad people who teach a false gospel who can grow a church really big but it's not leading people to God. It's leading people to something else. So there have to be more criteria than just growth. Paul, at the time he's writing this, and they're questioning his credentials, he's beat down and on the run. The Corinthians are mad at him. He's been kicked out of Ephesus. You know, And so his point here is, look at my behavior. Look at what God is doing. God is still using me, and God's used me in your life, and that is the best credential. The best credibility I have is the power of God working through my efforts to serve you. It's like what he's saying is, he's like, look, my question is this. You want to question my credentials? Fine. What is it that you received from me? Did you receive religion? Did you receive you know, some kind of system where you were guilted and shamed into showing up and to jumping through hoops and to uh, you know, doing what it is that we wanted you to do? Were we trying to control you? Did I get rich by coming to your town and telling you about Jesus Christ? Did that happen? Or did I give you God's love? That is the credential. That is what matters. Is that I lead you to myself or did I lead you to God? The question that matters in this issue of authentic Christian leadership is not numbers. Numbers can play a role. People responding plays a role, and that's part of Paul's argument here. But that's the real question is, has my leadership led you toward God or has it led you toward men? That's what you need to evaluate my ministry by is what Paul says. He goes on and says this in, in 4 through 6. He says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not the letter of the Spirit, not of, not the le- but of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so as he addresses this issue, he really lands on a really meaty section here where he says, look, the question of authenticity, should you listen to me, am I from God or not? Let me answer that question. First of all, you're our letter. Look to your own life and look to your own heart and look to the impact of our efforts in your life and you will see that you are the proof that we are from God. In addition to that, There are four aspects here of the genuine article that he is listing out here. Four different ways, things that we could look to to kind of see 
You know, what is it that we should look for in somebody that is trying to be used by God, whether we should listen to them or not, whether we should follow them or not? One of them has to do with confidence and where they get their confidence from. The other one has to do with their adequacy and where they get their adequacy from. That they're servants, that they're not people who lord over others, but they're people who, whose desire is to serve people with, for, for God's purposes. And that it's spirit-based and not law-based. And so I want to break these things down so we can look at this verse a little more closely and see what it is that Paul is talking about. The first one, he said, is where does his confidence come from? And that's a really important question. Think about it. You know, if you've ever tried to be used by God, it's scary. And one of the biggest accusations, one of the biggest fears you have, if you want to step up and take some kind of leadership position, especially a spiritual leadership position, is the question that plagues you all the time is, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm leading people in the wrong direction? Who has the gumption, who has the gall to stand up and say, I know what God wants, follow me? That sounds like a crazy person, right? And often that's exactly what crazy people do, right? They say, I know what God is or I am God, follow me. And so being a spiritual leader, where does your confidence come from? As Paul is going through all of this, alienated from the Corinthians, kicked out of Ephesus, you know, beaten, shipwrecked, snake bit, all the things that's going on, you can bet that one of the questions that came up regularly is, God, am I doing the right thing? He'd given up so much. He was suffering. Am I suffering? Does my suffering mean anything? Have I just made this up? Where does his confidence, his ability to take on an entire church of people and write them a letter saying, you guys are like children, and you need to grow up. Who gets the confidence to take on a group of people like that on a spiritual issue? Where does that come from? He says, my confidence comes through Christ. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. That's where my confidence comes from. Paul is not a self-confident person. He's not like, I am sure that I am smart enough, I am strong enough, and I am charismatic enough that I, can, I, can, I know what's right. That would have been Paul as a Pharisee before he broke and was humbled, and it was revealed to him from God that he was not God's friend, but he was God's enemy, persecuting and killing God's children. That experience taught Paul that he cannot be confident in his own self. Self-confidence is not what he needs. Confidence in God. Paul had to be confident that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He speaks of it often because he had met the risen Christ. He knew he was there. He was involved in what was going on in Jerusalem. And when the tomb was empty and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Paul knew that everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus taught about the love of God, about the free offer of forgiveness, about him being God, and that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father but through him, Paul knew at that moment that that must be true because the man who was dead for three days, who had been killed on a cross, was now standing in front of him saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Stop hurting my people. He knew Jesus was alive, raised from the dead. 
He also knew that Jesus paid for his sin as horrible as his crimes were against the children of God. Here was Jesus with wounds in his hands standing in front of him saying, I have a plan for you and I want to use you to help build my church. I can forgive you for all the things that you've done. And I have a plan to use you in a powerful way. And so his confidence comes from, he was, he knew, he knew it in his bones that God wanted to use him. He had been called by the risen Christ to spread the word of God's love to those who didn't know him. That's where his confidence comes from. Not from himself, but from the power of God. And you need that because there are times where it's really hard to know if you're doing what it is that God wants you to do. And he probably had those experiences again and again and again. You know, shipwrecked. God, you know, on his, he was shipwrecked on his way to prison, right? <laughs> it's like, come on, man. You know, God, what are we doing here? Is this, is, are you sovereign? Are you in charge? Am I, or are you just like getting me out of the way? Is that what's happening? I misread the whole situation and you really don't want me to be used? But he could go back to, I know Jesus is real. I know he was God. I know that he raised from the dead. I know that he came to me and that he called me to good work. And so he could press on. He could press on. Now, it's helpful. You have to do some gut checks from time to time, right? If you want to be out there trying to serve people and trying to help people and lead them in a spiritual way, it's good to ask yourself some questions because we're all fallible. We can all get off track, right? And so when we have those times where our confidence is shaken, not in the power of God, not in the reality of God's love for us, but that, in, that our, somehow our interpretation of what he has called us to do is wrong, right? We can ask ourselves some simple questions. Am I doing my best to say yes to God? Is he in charge here? Is he calling me to do something and I am, am I willing to do it? Or do I know that he's calling me to do something and I'm saying no? If you can answer yes to that question, not even yes perfectly in every way, yes, my motives are pure. No, but just in the sense of, look, I may make mistakes and I'm a fallible human being, but I know I, what I am really striving for is to be under God's leadership. That I believe is true. Is my orientation toward loving and serving others, or is it toward protecting my reputation or my comfort? That's a great question to ask yourself in moments where your confidence is shaken. Is this about protecting me and keeping what I've built and holding off and keeping my position of influence, or is this about serving others, loving others, and helping other people know more about God? Is what I'm doing consistent with God's word or is it contradictory? That would be a big one, right? I can look at what I'm doing and do I see that the, that the word of God upholds and agrees with what it is that I'm trying to do? Or am I having to like steer wrestle and try to change and do I have all these really complicated ways of interpreting away what the Bible says so that I can do what I want to do? As a result of the efforts of what I'm trying to do are people learning to depend on God, or are they learning to depend on me? This is something that if you want to have confidence in the Lord and not in yourself, you have to regularly check yourself, because a lot of us, we want people to depend on us. It feels good to be needed, 
And we can build a cult of self where we are causing people to believe that we will be there for them and they can rely on us. And that makes us feel like we have purpose and it makes us feel like we have meaning until we fail them, which is inevitable because we're fallen human beings. And when we teach people to rely on us, we are dooming them to disappointment. But instead, can we point people not to rely on me, but to rely on Jesus Christ and to learn to grow and depend on him who will never fail them? And is that what's happening as we're stepping out? We may help people along the way. We may be the training wheels that they need for a short period of time. But ultimately, people need to stand on their own in their relationship with God and be fed by him through their devotional life, through their prayer life, and through their efforts to be used by him in someone else's life. We can say yes to those things. As imperfect as it may be, we can say our confidence is in him. It's not self-confidence. It's confidence in the power of God to work in our lives. The second point that's so important is directly connected to it. He's confident because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and how that changed his relationship with God. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross enabled him to connect with the power of God. And that's why he says, I'm confident because my adequacy doesn't come from myself. I don't have like this limited store of energy and power that I have to tap in order to do all these things. Where it's like, well, I'm going to get up and do I, have, do I have it within me today to do God's work? Paul's answer to that every day is not even close. It is not within me. I do not have the power. I am inadequate. And one of the things that really challenges people when they think about maybe mentoring somebody else spiritually, doing, getting into a discipleship relationship, or they think about maybe leading a home church, they say, well, I'm not adequate for that. I would fail at that. I am no good. I cannot do that. You know, one of the first things we want to say to them is, thank God you realize that now. Do you know how hard it would be to teach you that lesson? If you know that you're inadequate, you know that you lack what it takes to do real spiritual work, you're ready. You're ready because that means you are going to depend on God and turn to him and realize your adequacy comes from him. And that is so important. That is what Paul is driving home to them is, how can I speak so boldly to you? How can I risk all of this uh, alienation between us? Where does this come from? What gumption do I have to stand against these religious haters that are coming in and telling you all these terrible things about me? Because I'm just a servant of God. It's his power that changes people's lives. The power to change comes from God, not from us. And there's tremendous freedom in this as the leader, as someone who wants to step out and serve, to know that the ultimate results of this are outside of my control. I, as a a home church leader or an elder or a CT teacher, whatever role it is, whatever leadership role that I have, I can do nothing to change anyone's life. And I can't look out there and see that there are people who are suffering and and just realize what I need to do is go and convince them that a guy 2,000 years ago died and that everything in this life matters depending on their understanding of that. Who's so charismatic, so winsome, so brilliant, 
that they can convince people of the importance of somebody dying 2,000 years ago. No one, except the power of God. Except the power of God to convict men's hearts, to tell them to move in and share with them that they have a God-shaped hole in their heart and that he is the answer. He will knock on the door of their heart. That's what convinces men that they need God, is God rapping at the door of their hearts saying, you know there's something missing. Jesus Christ died so that you and I could be reconciled. Open the door. That's the power of God. There's no preacher. There's no man. There's no leader. There's no rhetoric that can convince a person's heart of that. And Paul understood that better than anyone else. And imagine the freedom that you get. You know, God is either going to work or he's not going to work. My job is to be obedient to him, is to say, yes, God, if you want me to go, I will go. And whether they listen or not, whether you move or not, that's really up to you and to them, God. But I will be faithful. I will put myself in a position where I can be used by you if you choose to use me. What Paul is saying to them is, look, if all I bring to you is myself, then I bring nothing. Paul is nothing. God is everything. But his argument is following that if God worked through me and is working through me, maybe you should listen to him, right? This isn't about Paul and Corinth. This is about God and Corinth. And if you can look at Paul and look at his ministry and realize that God is working through him, then you'll see that what you're angry about from 1 Corinthians isn't what Paul said. You're angry about what God said. And that's where you need to take that. You can tell how well you're depending on God's power by your level of burnout and your anxiety and spiritual work. Uh, you know, we're at an interesting time in our church's history. Uh, you know, we're this movement that started as a part of the, the Jesus movement in the 60s and the 70s. You know, we've been here for almost 40 years, and our founders, our our, um, our senior elders are getting on in years and they're trying to figure out, like, what does it look like, you know, to transition and to move things? And, you know, what's going to happen in Xenos in the next 10 years? And the elders have come together and they've said to me, they said, Ryan, we would like you to take over and be in charge of adult ministry. We, have, we want you to look at and, and be engaged with all the adult home churches and all the adult spheres. Do you know what that feels like? I'll tell you, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Not because you're all so stubborn, right? <laughs> it's terrifying because what if I fail? What if I fail you? What if I fail God? What if God has built this incredible church, this incredible place, and it's like somehow I'm the guy that screws it all up and makes it terrible, right? That's the kind of thinking process that you go through. What's the reality of that? What's the sin at the heart of that anxiety that I just expressed to you? That I think it all depends on me. That I am adequate, right? And that God is quick to move in and be like, dude, you're just not that important. <laughs> I'm the head of the church. Yeah, I may use you in a certain role or I may choose to, to work with you in a certain way, but you are not capable of destroying my plans, right? You're just not that powerful, 
And what I've begun to realize is I have good days and I have bad days, right? And on good days, it's like, God, you're in charge. I'm just along for the ride. And my adequacy is in you and my confidence is in you, right? And in those cases, we're able to move forward and get things done, right? It's the days where it's like, oh, my God, you know, everybody's going to hate me and I'm going to fail and it's going to be miserable and blah, blah, blah. You know, that God has to come in and just say, you're just really not that important. And there is so much freedom in that, right? And so whether you're leading your family, right? As a parent, you're leading your children. Whether you're leading a home church, a Bible study, you know, whether you're a mentor or a disciple, and you're wrestling with that anxiety of what if I fail? What if I don't come through? You need to connect with the fact that your adequacy is in him. You are doomed to fail without him. But he is a limitless source of power and love and opportunity that because Jesus Christ died on the cross, wants to connect with you and wants to fill you up and use you. And if you're obedient to him, if you're being faithful and you're not seeing lives change and you're feeling like this is frustrating and I don't even think that I can do this anymore, then you can just trust in the fact that you are always inadequate for the job and that God will either work through you or he has some other plan as long as you're saying, yes, you're doing everything that is in your power. The only power that you have is to tell God yes or to tell God no. That's it. Now, it's an incredible power. Think about it. The alpha and the omega who speaks things into existence, you can tell him no. Amazing. Amazing. But if you tell him yes, then everything else will take care of itself. It won't be easy, but it'll be for him. The test of true ministry, of true leadership, is not attendance. It's not your four-part chart. It's not seeing how much you're growing. It's not the amount of money that you can raise, the latest building campaign. It's not the number of likes you have on Facebook. That's not the test of true spiritual power. It's changed lives. It's selfish people becoming giving people. It's arrogant people becoming humble people. It's rash people becoming patient people. That's the miracle and the power of God, and you can't do anything to change yourself, and you certainly can't do anything to change anyone else. But we can say yes to God and unleash his power to work and see more of God's power and more of God's love abounding in our community and manifesting itself in a way that draws people in and makes them willing more and more willing to tell God yes. What's your home group like? Is it taking its adequacy from the power of God? Or is it dry and boring and the same people week after week with nothing changing? I've been in home groups like that. My home group right now is kind of like that. I can tell you that because they're all over in the auditorium. (laughs) it's kind of lame how does that happen these are amazing people right that love God and that 
are doing all this stuff to serve him. They obviously have a great leader. <laughs> Why is it so boring? And like, not only them, but me, it's like, oh, home church this week. Oh, I know I'm going to go, but <laughs> how does that happen, right? Is the, is the power of God present when we gather together? Or are we doing something out of habit? Is the problem that God isn't working anymore? That God's just decided, eh, I'm going to do something else with my time. Is that what's happened? Or is the problem that your leaders are fakers and frauds, right? <laughs> Thank you, whoever you were. For easing my fears. <laughs> is that the problem? Or is it more likely that the group has stopped relying on God for their adequacy? That we've stopped praying and inviting the power of God into our ministry? That our time of prayer and our intentionality and our desire to see the power of God move has somehow been blunted or stunted? by the distractions and the cares of the world system. If your group is boring and lame, have people stopped praying for that ministry? Stopped realizing, God, we have to go back to you. You are our adequacy, God, and nothing good, nothing meaningful is going to happen here tonight if, you don't, if we don't invite you in, if we don't get together and talk about the spirit of God and the power of God and the truth of God. Do we just show up, say a little prayer, wait for the teaching to be over, go to the snack table and talk about you know, what was on TV and then wonder why our meetings are lame and boring and why no one is really being inspired to take risks for God? Have we stopped inviting the power of God into our meeting? We spend a lot of time pining for the past and remembering how exciting home group used to be without lifting a finger of faith and prayer and expectation to see even no matter what pieces we have, maybe your leaders are not that strong and maybe the people in your life and in your home group are, are pretty compromised and it's pretty lame. But do you know how powerfully God can work even among that? Do you know how eager God is to want to work among that? The mistake that we often make is we feel like, well, my group is lame, and so it's time to crack the whip, right? The beatings will continue until morale improves, <laughs> right? I can't tell you. I mean, I look at my home group, and I'm like, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, we got to crack some skulls here. Let's see some joy, people, right? Where does the adequacy come from then? That's, that's a fundamental flaw, is if we think that the problem is, is that people just need to try harder, right? We need to be more and more willing in faith to, to rely on God. And yeah, we can talk about that without cracking the whip, right? We can say, look, what is wrong? Let's just, let's just admit. Let's just get it out there in the open. This is not an exciting thing to be a part of, this thing that we're doing right now. 
And what do we need to do to change that? To come together and be real with each other. And invite God and the power of God into our meetings. Often this happens because people have stopped saying yes to God. They're not out there, you know, they're, they're, they're good people. They're living moral lives. But God is calling them to, to take risks, right? To share with their neighbors. To take hard stands with, with their spouses. To get involved and have real relationships. And we stop trusting and we stop taking risks because we slowly get lulled to sleep and we stop believing that it's worth taking the risk. And that makes our group dull. And then as our group and our ministry and our spiritual life becomes dull, we ask the question, why should I take a risk for this? And do you see the cycle that we get into? If we say, well, why should I take a risk for this? Then that makes it all the more boring. And as it gets more boring, it gets more difficult to imagine making sacrifices of time, of energy, of prayer, of money to make it good. Something has to arrest us. Something has to move in and stop that process and say the problem is not the power of God. The problem is not the people in my group. The answer is me. Is me being willing to be responsive to the leading of God in my life, not just at home church, but throughout the week. Your group may need to realize how inadequate it is. And just have a come to Jesus moment. And start praying. Inviting the power of God in. Because our adequacy is in him. The third point is that we're servants of a new covenant. He says, our adequacy is in him who has also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Right? That we're here to serve. We're here. An authentic Christian leader is here to lay down his life for the people to help them, to move them, to help them connect with the truth of God, the power of God, and the love of God. Paul is saying, I'm not here to beat you up with the law. That's what they think, isn't it? They're looking at 1 Corinthians, and they're like, you just blasted us, dude. And you're trying to make us feel ashamed, and you're trying to make us feel guilty, and you want to make us change because you think that if we're scared and that you're going to come back and, and, and be all up in our face, that that's going to make us change. And Paul says, no, that's not true. That's not why I did that. I'm a minister of the new covenant. The grace of God is what motivates me. I'm here to build you up with love. I'm here to help you see that that is what God is all about. This whole thing is not about shame, and it's not about fear. It's about love. His point is is that the old covenant under Moses was designed to bring people to a point of defeat. It was to show them that they were inadequate so that they could be prepared to stop trying to earn God's love and be prepared to receive it. If you know that you're inadequate and that you can't of yourself be righteous, which is what the law and the old covenant teaches us, then you throw up your hands and you say what? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I can't do it, God. And God says, now you're talking. Now you're talking. Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 through 26, therefore the law has come, become our tutor to lead us to Christ 
so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's not trying to use the truth to shame them. His critique of them was not to embarrass them. It was to lead them back to the source of spiritual life. To get them to see that they were missing out. They are already loved. They are already accepted. They are already children of God, even while they were doing all those immoral things. But they could find joy, and they could find peace, and they could find meaning, and they could find purpose by saying yes to God more. And that's what he was trying to get them to see. And the fourth point is very much connected to that. He says, for we are servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the question. Is your spiritual life dying under the law, or is it living under grace? You see, they were pissed at Paul because they thought he was putting them under the law. And what he's saying is, that's not what I'm about. That's not what I'm doing. I love you. I love God. I accept you. And God has fully accepted you. And my credentials, whether you should listen to me or not, are all about whether or not God works through me or not. And I am trying to get you guys to see that there are things in your life that need to change, not because you will be judged if you don't change them, but because you will be used if you do. You will have opportunities that will bring you joy and that will change eternity. And then he gets into this kind of strange conversation with them about Moses in uh, verses 7 through 12. And it's somewhat confusing, but the only point that he's trying to make here is that the new covenant is superior to the old. And Jewish thinking, you know, when you think about the old covenant, you think about two things. You think about the law and you think about Moses, right? And so he goes into this explanation from Exodus 34, where in the old covenant, you know, they, Moses leads them out of Egypt and they're following him around in the desert. And, and God would call Moses on top of a mountain, right? And now the original plan, according to the Old Testament, is that they would be a nation of priests. God wanted to be connected to all of them. But as they go up the mountain, it's scary, and people start getting freaked out, and they're like, Moses, you go on without us. So Moses would go up the mountain by himself and speak to the Lord as a man speaks to his friend. And he would be up there for days. And he would come down after hanging out with God, and his face would be glowing with the glory of the Lord. You know, in the uh, Charlton Heston thing, they just turn his hair white, you know, like God ages you, you know. But it said that his face would glow with the glory of God. And do you know what people did when they saw it? They were like, ugh, that is scary, dude. Put a veil on your face. We can't look at you, right? They would see the glory of the Lord and they'd be like, that is too much for us. And so he gets into explaining this to them. And his point is just this. He's like, look, if the glory of God could shine on Moses like that in the old covenant, how much more the glory of God can shine through us because of what Jesus Christ has done. We can manifest the glory of God in a far better way than Moses, whose face shone so brightly they made him cover it up. What we have 
And this time, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, is so much more powerful than the law. And his whole point here culminates right here in verse 18, where he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? This is like the main point, and it's, it's, it's somewhat easy to miss if you don't understand the intricacies of, of this example. But what he's saying is, because Jesus Christ died on the cross and made us not slaves to God, but sons and daughters of God, and because our power and our confidence and our adequacy is in him, because we live in a time that is of the new covenant and not of the old covenant, we all get to go up the mountain. That's his point. And the reality of that has to sink home. This is not something that's just available to one person like Moses. This is something that is available to anyone who will answer God's call. It used to be just Moses, but now we all glow. Even Paul, the worst of all apostles, not even one of the 12, who was persecuting and murdering Christians, even he gets to glow. Even the Corinthians, the worst, most immoral culture in Greek history, who has a, have a church of Christians and they're doing all kinds of messed up things and taking each other to court and sexual immorality and getting drunk on the communion wine, even they get to glow. And even Xenoids with lame home churches <laughs> can glow. They can glow. Because our adequacy is in him, God can turn any situation around. Paul can rejoice in the midst of failure, in the midst of all the hardship that he's experiencing, because his adequacy is in Christ. He can have things falling apart at Ephesus, falling apart in Corinth, and still have the confidence and the boldness to speak the truth in love, because his adequacy is in Christ. The Corinthians do not have to be offended by the rebuke. They don't have to be all uppity and alienated from Paul because they are fallen human beings and their adequacy is in Christ. And they can take the truth and turn to God and say, we have continued to be inadequate and we need you. We need your power to change our lives. And we, as a church can remember that it's God that makes our meetings powerful. That it's God who wants to come in to our CT, to our home church, to all the things that we do, and he wants to bring his power to bear. We just have to tell him yes. So how do we get back? How do we get back to depending on him? How do we unleash real spiritual power? Well, that's chapter four. So we'll talk about that next week, unleashing the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, your scripture type or verse for this week, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Yeah, Lord, there's great comfort in knowing our inadequacy. Larry Crabb wrote the book, The Pressure's Off, <laughs> that we are doomed to fail without you. So 
uh, we, we needn't try. But we do. Uh, we forget, and we want to be our own God. And um, some of us just foolishly want to be so important that uh, we think everything counts, everything depends on us. And we just thank you, God, that that is just fundamentally untrue. That no matter where we are and no matter what our level of responsibility is, is that it's just a matter of saying yes to you and depending on you to come through. Uh, that sounds real simple and nice and easy, and it can definitely we can definitely make that complicated, God, but thank you that in my life and in every life that I've ever seen, that when somebody said yes to you, you came through, and that we have every reason to be confident that that, that will always be the case. Help us to think about that, God, in our groups, in our home churches, in our neighborhoods, and in all the different areas that you have us engaged. We want to take our adequacy from you, and we want to bring your power to bear in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, because you are worthy of, of, of that glory. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.